you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that's where we'll be today. Uh, last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, actually, we went all of chapter 1 and into 2, verses 1 through 5. And so today we're going to be looking at the rest of chapter 2. What we're doing right now, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've about 45 sermons in, we looked at Paul planting the church in the city of Corinth in Acts 18. And so we stopped, and now we're looking at the letter of 1 Corinthians. So after he planted the church, we're going to look at a correspondence that he had with them uh, just a few years after he had planted the church. This church is only two or three years old, and I mean, they have, they have a lot going on. When I say a lot, none of it's necessarily good. Uh, they have a lot of problems going on in their life. Uh, and it's pretty interesting to only be a couple years old and having had the, the Apostle Paul plant their church, you would think, okay, I mean, just a couple years in, they're still crazy excited, everything should be good. Paul planted this church, so it should be pretty solid. And a couple years in, I mean, they're, they're a huge mess. And so if you feel like your life is an absolute mess, uh, you can take heart. The Apostle Paul planted a church in Corinth the same way. And so as we're looking at this series, there's 16 chapters, we're going to try to do it in a 16 weeks, a chapter a week, kind of a bigger viewpoint of each chapter. Um, take heart as we look at these chapters and you see things that are going on in these texts um, about this particular church. Take heart with your own life and though you may think your life is a mess, uh, as you see these things that are going on in this particular uh, city and this t- particular church, you can take heart. It's not that you take heart because, oh, they're messed up and I'm messed up. Whew, that's good. But instead, uh, Jesus <laughs> comes and meets with people that have a whole lot of things going on in their life that they don't think are, are good or things that, that they think that the Lord is kind of really wanting them to fix. And the, and the good news is, because of Jesus Christ, all of these things have been paid for by the cross. All of these things will be sanctified one day. All of these things show us just how much he loves us. And so as we're looking uh, through the book of, the first, of first Corinthians, um, I hope that you'll see the grace of God in the gospel for your life right now. Everything that you're seeing in the text that is pertaining to 1 Corinthians absolutely pertains to you as well. So uh, what I want to do is read the text. So let's all stand uh, and we're going to start at 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 starting at verse 6. After I finish reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord and you'll say thanks be to God. So starting at verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages uh, for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understand the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. You can have a seat if you want. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you so much that uh, as we read it, we can trust in it that these are your very words. That these words have been breathed out by you and have absolute relevance in 2017 as they did uh, 2,000 years ago. And Lord, I pray that you would give us... um, a special measure of seeing and understanding what your word has to say for us this morning. We know that it is a uh, a difficult text with some peculiar, difficult verses. And so we pray that you would give us uh, insight into knowing what you have for us this morning, that we can see the beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit given to us. 
We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you weren't here last week, uh, this particular chapter is really tied into last week's sermon. So uh, if you weren't here last week, what I'm going to do is review really quickly last week's sermon uh, in, in an outline fashion so that you can understand what we're doing. Uh, but chapter 2 is it's a pretty difficult chapter. It's very technical. It's got a lot of... Uh, Difficult sentences in Greek that have been translated into this particular version of English that are close, but there's still, they're still some, some questions like, what, what is going on here? What does this mean? So uh, what I want to do is give you the full measure of what's going on so that when we get into this particular text we're looking at today, you'll understand it. So um, last week, we looked at uh, chapter 1 going through, and what we saw starting at verse 4 was a thanksgiving given by Paul in verse 4. Uh, from verse 4 to verse 9, Paul lists out um, a thanksgiving for the Corinthians. And as he does, there's eight truths that are all uh, obtained by all of us in the gospel. And we saw those in verses 4 through 9. You can certainly read those and figure those out. But after he gives the gospel, which is important because there's so many problems here, he, he reminds them of who they are, which is an amazing grace that Paul would do because they're, they're so messed up in this particular church that he tells them who they are in Christ first, and then starts going into the things that are going on. Now, uh, as I said last week, the, the letter of 1 Corinthians is really divided into two huge chunks. The first section you can see in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. So Chloe's people and Chloe have written this list of things that are going on in the Corinthian church that Paul needs to address. Paul, you planted this church, they're a mess. Could you address these particular things? And that's really the first part of 1 Corinthians, kind of the first six chapters. Uh, after that, chapter 7 all the way to 16 are just more things that Paul wants to address with them. The, the Corinthians had written a letter to him, so there's a shift in chapter 7 where Paul says, hey, now about the things that you wrote to me. So that's kind of the big picture, the, the most broad outline of 1 Corinthians. I've got some stuff that Chloe told me that I need to tell you about, and you asked me some questions. I'm going to answer those in chapter 7 and following. But as we're looking at this first section, uh, chapters 1 through 7, the things that he's talking about um, are the factions or the infighting or the divisions that are going, that are going on. Specifically, you can see in verse 12, uh, that you've got these people that are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And so this, there's the divisions that's, that are going on in there. There's also later on things that are going on from incest to lawsuits between Christian believers and sexual immorality because uh, Corinth had this historically pagan, sexual immoral city. And so some of those particular people still had the vestiges of those sinful se sexual morality things going on in their own lives. And so Paul addresses that in chapter 6. So those are the things that are going on. Now, the problem that's, that's addressed in, in verses 10 through 17 is that there are factions going on and divisions over different names uh, in, inside of <clears throat> the city of Corinth. And so Paul is wanting to address what's, what's wise in the world isn't necessarily just what's wise in God. And God's um, folly is far more intelligent than any of man's human wisdom. And so that's really the problem he gives us in, in verses 10 through 17. You can go ahead and put up the problem uh, uh, on there. It's, it's last week that we saw is Roman numeral 2. It says the problem, divisions over leaders in the name of Christian wisdom. That's the thanksgiving. There it is, the problem that's going on. And so as he's going to do that, he's going to give the answer to the problem. So the problem was listed in 10 through 17. The answer to address this problem and any problem, which you'll all guess, is the gospel. That's exactly right. And so he gives that and he starts unpacking the gospel. Um, I noticed this week that people say unpack a lot in sermons, so I'm going to try not to say it anymore. But uh, so he starts... Uh, explaining the gospel here. So starting at verse 18, all the way through 2.5 is his explanation of the gospel. So the answer is the gospel. Now he's going to talk about God's folly, and we should air quote folly because that's just ridiculous. There's no foolishness of God. He's, he's, he's ultimately um, more intelligent and all-knowing compared to all of us. And so he's going to use that in the Corinthians terms because they have this misunderstanding of who God is. And so the answer is God's foolishness or God's folly, which contradicts human wisdom. And so he talks about what would be some of the things in the gospel that would be considered God's folly. The first one is in verses 18 through 25. You can put it up. Is a crucified Messiah. That would sound insane to them, uh, that God would that God would crucify himself for the sins of the world. Um, 
but that's, that's part of the good news. The next part he tells them is the Corinthian believers themselves, verse 26 through 31. The Corinthian believers were such a mess. And he's, Paul says in verses 26 through 31, hey, you know what? You're believers. You became believers through this message of the gospel. And if we're looking at you compared to these super apostles or these super followers, you're saying, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. You're saying these particular things, and he brings it back to them. He says, you're actually an apologetic that the gospel's foolishness. Because those guys have seemed to have all kinds of things going on. You, this is what he says to them in verse 26, consider your calling. None of you are wise to worldly standards. None of you are powerful. None of you are noble. Most of you are foolish. And God chose to, sh- to and most of you are weak. And God chose to, to save you to shame those people. So you're an apologetic of itself that you don't have to be some super person to be saved because God saved you. And look at you. There's nothing great about you. Uh, Apostle Paul can get away with that because he's Paul. Uh, and they're like, yeah, that's right. I am a mess. And I'm weak. And, but, Anyway, so that's, that's the f- second thing. And then the third thing that Paul says in the gospel that's God's folly is the literal way that Paul comes preaching to them. He tells us a couple ways that he says. Um, most of it's in verses 1 through 5. But you can also see it in verse 17 of chapter 1 that he says that the way that I actually shared the gospel with you wasn't with words of eloquent wisdom because uh, I didn't want the, cross, the Christ's cross to be emptied of its power. And then he also says it in 2, 1 through 5 that the way in which he came to, to preach to them is that he decided to do nothing except Christ. He came in weakness. He came in fear. He came in trembling. And the way that he came uh, in all those, not in words, not in plausible words of wisdom, but demonstration of the Spirit, and then he just, he just, I just preached Christ to you, and you got saved. So the preaching itself would seem to be the foolishness of God. You, you want the super apostles like Cephas, who are eloquent. You didn't even get saved by that. You got saved by Paul's stumbling preaching. And so those p- three particular things should help you realize that factions aren't needed. Now, what he's going to do in 2.16 th- is he's going to um, kind of shift gears. So if he's got God's foolishness in verses uh, 1.18 through 2.5, or God's folly in the gospel. He's also going to, you can go to uh, the next one. The next answer to help them understand these factions is God's wisdom. So he's juxtaposing God's foolishness in chapter 1 to chapter 2, God's wisdom, which is given to us in verses 6 through 16. Now, we need to air quote folly, but we don't need to air quote wisdom because God is ultimately all wise. So the answer continuing as he's explaining the gospel is God's wisdom, which has been revealed by the Spirit to us. Now, um, this particular set of verses, like I said, is, is pretty technical and can be kind of difficult to follow. Uh, but I'm going to do my, do my best to just make it as, as easy to understand and as practical as I can. Um, so what we're looking at here, if, if you look at the very end of chapter 2, there's a little sentence that says, but we have the mind of Christ. And so uh, the way that we can understand all this is God has given us the Holy Spirit. He's revealed his wisdom to us by giving us the Holy Spirit to help us understand things of God. And now, because we have what would be the mind of Christ, I'm going to explain what that means. Uh, It's not some kind of mystical thing. It's it's a whole lot more practical than you think. We have the mind of Christ. Now we we can look at Christian's wisdom, like if you're a believer in Jesus, you have wisdom, versus non-Christians, those that don't know Jesus and their wisdom. We can look at those two things, and they can be compared. So up until this point uh, in the text, in chapter 1, the word wisdom has kind of been viewed in contempt, the wisdom of this world. Uh, But now Paul's going to make a shift, uh, and he's going to start using the word wisdom in a positive light, not a negative light. The the world's wisdom of chapter 1 is one way to say it. Now he's going to talk about God's, God's wisdom, and so now it's going to be in a positive, positive way. So Paul's strategy, strategy for using the word wisdom, and the way he's going to use it is going to shift. As I said, thus far in chapter 1, since it's been talking about human wisdom, it's been used in a philosophical category, talking about how to understand things, what's right, what's wrong. Now he's going to take the word uh, wisdom and shift it away from a philosophical category to a soteriological category or salvation, the way that God decides to save. God uses wisdom and salvation to save us. So we're not talking about human wisdom, philosophy, reading philosophers, that kind of wisdom. He's shifting the meaning of the word wisdom, Sophia in the Greek, and now saying God's wisdom has nothing to do with human understanding or human you know, Kant or whoever you like to read, but instead, salvation. The wisdom of God is saving us. 
Uh, so this shift, it no longer refers to just human intelligence, but instead salvation. It's using in a salvific way. Now, you'll notice as we read through there, first person plural has been used in this text deliberately, as Paul was saying, we, we, us, those kinds of things. And by doing this, Paul, talking to the Corinthian church, which we all understood is an absolute mess. They're an absolute mess. And he's saying, we, we. Now, Paul, before salvation, was a mess. But now, if we're looking at Paul's life, we would say, humanly speaking, this guy really seems to be living for Christ. I mean, he really loves Jesus. Sure, he's got sin. We don't know what it is particularly. But, but him, in some kind of human comparison to the Corinthian church, you would say that he's, he's following Christ pretty well, and they could, they could follow him, as he tells us in other texts, follow me as I follow Christ. So Paul's imploring or using this uh, first-person plural, and it's deliberate. And by doing this, what he's saying is that he shares, along with the most immature Corinthian Christian, an ability to be able to commune with God, understand God's will, and make sense of the foundational scriptures, uh, uh, truths of Scripture. That's important for them. He's, he's leveling the playing field with them and saying, I'm not like the super guy, and you're, you're kind of down here. He's saying, we all have the Holy Spirit, and you and I together, whether you're an absolute mess, wrecked, sinner, messed up, your life is insane, or you're Billy Graham's, you know, super person, whatever it is, you know, what he's saying is that all this means that because you're the most immature, perhaps the most mature, if you're a Christian, you have the ability to commune with God because you have the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to understand his will for your life and make sense of foundational truths of scripture. So here's the main idea. Before we go further, uh, go ahead and put it up. I want you to kind of know the big idea of what Paul's trying to help them see. Because you have the Holy Spirit and the mind of Christ, therefore, you can commune with God you can understand his will, and you can understand his word. If while we're going through the rest of this kind of sermon, this te- sermon which is, there's some difficult sentences and it's kind of technical. If you, if you, if you blank out on me and you're like, I don't understand anything he's going to say from this point forward. Remember that sentence right there. This is the point of the sermon, right? This is, this is what you need to know. Because you have been given the Holy Spirit and now you have the mind of Christ, you if you're a messy sinner like, like the Corinthians church or you have a, a history of really walking with Jesus and things are going well spiritually in your life, either one, you have the ability to commune with God. Either way, you have the ability to understand his will in your life and understand his word. That's what he's going to tell us as he's talking about God's wisdom and giving us the spirit and saving us here in the context of this argument with factions in, in the Corinthian church. Now, let's see... how he starts this argument that he's going to do in verses 6 through 10. You can go to the next next slide. So the first thing is that we're looking at is the answer of the gospel, which is revealed to by the Spirit. So there's the nature of God's wisdom. Uh, He's going to explain to us the nature of God's wisdom. So this this is still talking about how the gospel in God's wisdom versus his foolishness. His wisdom is this, verses 6 through 10. Yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom that can also be read as wisdom in a mystery. Uh, And so Paul, when he uses the word mystery in the Bible, it's always talking about this mystery of of the Messiah that would come and save us. And so this wisdom in a mystery... Or a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of a man imagined what God has prepared for him, for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So the nature of God's wisdom. There's some things we can look in verses 6 through 10a to understand the nature of God's wisdom. And remember, God's wisdom is talking about salvation. So we're talking about what's God's wisdom and the way that he's choosing to save us. What are some things, some characteristics of the way that God's choosing to save us? Number one, we can see, these won't be on the screen, is that this this wisdom of God was decreed before the ages. You can see it there in verse 7. But we impart a secret wisdom hidden from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So God's decision in salvation, who would, would be saved, the way in which salvation would happen, has been 
Uh, always plan A, always from the beginning, before the ages even began. God's wisdom is, a- and because he's all-powerful, is able to carry out this plan perfectly. His plan has never been thwarted. He also says this in Ephesians 1. Uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which was he has blessed us in the beloved. So from the foundations of the earth, God's wisdom in salvation has been set forth before the ages and cannot be thwarted. That means if you're in Christ, that will never change because it was already set from the foundations. of. There's, there's no losing your salvation ever. You are set on the firm feet, not of your plan, not of your decision to accept Jesus, which is not biblical, to trust Christ because he has given you the ability to trust him and God has chosen you as a son or daughter and adopted you from the foundations of the earth. There's no losing your salvation ever. And so the nature of God's wisdom is that it's decreed before the ages. The second thing is that it has been held as a mystery. That's what it says when it says secret and hidden wisdom. As I said, that can be better translated as wisdom and a mystery. This this is um, referring to the the mystery of the gospel. Uh, Paul uses that exact same wording in Ephesians again. If you look at verse 9 where it says, uh, according to which which he has lavished, I'm reading at verse 8, according to which he has lavished on us his wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. The mystery is that the Old Testament saints did not fully understand the way in which God was going to save, but in the New Testament, the mystery has been revealed, namely, Jesus has been revealed, so it's no longer a mystery for us. We, We don't have some kind of mysterious knowledge that no one can figure out. The mystery is Jesus is the Messiah. And so it's been held as a mystery, secret and hidden wisdom, but now it's been revealed to, in Christ. Now, there's also some more things about the nature of God's wisdom here. He's going to make a contrast between Paul's wisdom and the wisdom of the age. In verses 6 through 10, he does this even by quoting Isaiah 64, 4. That's in verse 9. You can see uh, what <clears throat> no eye has heard, no ear heard, no the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. If you were to turn to Isaiah 64, 4, you would read it and you would read that and you would say, that doesn't sound the exact same. Um, that's because it's not an exact parallel in the Old Testament of a quote. Um, but we need to understand a few things. Um, don't miss the very beginning of verse 9, but as it is written. So Paul was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he wrote this. And he wrote, as it is written, and then quotes a, a kind of a, an amalgamation or a combining of thoughts from the Old Testament, and specifically in Isaiah, and puts it together. And combining these Old Testament texts, which were probably reflected on in apocalyptic Judaism. That's the, that's the, the period from where Malachi ends and Matthew starts, that little, that little period right there of there was no Bible being written. Paul, and during that, the Judaism during that period, took a collection of these Isaiah thoughts and put this together. And so Paul, as he says, as it is written, is viewing this particular line as scripture. So he perfectly has the ability to do that because he's carried along by the Holy Spirit to put that together and say, what this means is no eyes ever seen, no ears ever heard, no heart ever imagined what God has prepared for those who loved him. So no one could conceive of the mystery of the gospel until God revealed it to them, what God has prepared for those who loved him. So we need to understand that what God has prepared for those who loved him is not um, to be interpreted in some kind of eschatological future thing. So this isn't like one day God's going to prepare something for me one day that is just going to blow my mind. And we, can't even, we shouldn't even put it in here today in, in 2017 and say, God's got something he's preparing for you right now that he's going to blow your mind. That's, neither one of those interpretations are correct. The right interpretation of verse 9 is what happened 2,000 years ago at the cross. The only interpretation that Paul's pointing to that's going to blow everybody's mind that God has prepared is the cross. It's not some futuristic, mysterious kind of thing. Instead, what Paul is trying to help us see is that this is directing towards the first century promise of Christ. So no one could have seen, no one could have heard, no heart could have ever imagined the greatest news ever that Jesus would die for us on the cross. And that's when, when we're looking at the nature of God's wisdom, no one could have figured it out. No one could have ever understood what God has prepared 
what, specifically what God has prepared is this, that he has freely and graciously give us, given us his own son to die for us so that we do not have to die, we do not have to suffer the just due punishment that we deserve for our sin. Instead, Jesus then takes our place and we trust in the sacrifice of the substitute of Christ for us and now all of our sin has been forgiven. No longer is there animals needed to be uh, sacrificed. God has made the perfect sacrifice in Christ and no one could imagine such a plan of love. No one. And so the nature of God's wisdom is that he would give us Christ, that Jesus Christ would come and take our place. There's even some more uh, explanations of the nature of God's wisdom. You can see in verses 6 through 10, there's also a contrast between mature, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. And then, so he's, he's going to compare the mature with the rulers of this age. Uh, although it is not a wisdom of the age or the rulers of this age. So he's comparing mature people. Mature here just means equals Christian, okay? I know in chapter 3, Paul is going to delineate Christians from, uh, in two different ways. But in chapter 2, mature Christian just means Christian. There's no mature or immature Christian. Mature just means a Christian versus what would be the rulers of this age. Um, and that just means people that aren't Christians. Um, the irony here is this, as you're looking at this, just, just think of the irony, is that the Corinthian church, Paul's calling them mature if they're in Christ, and the Corinthian church are not living according to this reality. And yet he still looks at them and calls them saints. He still looks at them and calls them love. And if you look, re, read 1 through 4 through 9, he tells them those eight truths that are obtained by Christ for them in the gospel. He's, even though they're not living to this reality, they're living as though they're unsaved. They're living as though they're in the group of the world's values. Paul still delineates them or gives them the title of a believer, which is grace upon grace of the Apostle Paul because of Christ. Um, but the rulers, so that's, that's the mature, the rulers of this age don't understand God's wisdom. The rulers would be a mixture of both political rulers, which he's going to talk about, the rulers of this age, but also um, demonic powers, which you would see in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that we, watched, we followed the prince of the power of the air, or even uh, in Ephesians 6, where it talks about the, the putting on the armor of God, that our, our, our fight isn't against flesh and blood, but against demonic powers, that things that we can't see. And so the rulers of this age, which would be both political rulers that don't know Christ and demonic powers versus the mature versus Christians, there's no comparison between the two. And that's the nature of God's wisdom. Now, the last thing you would see in the nature of God's wisdom is that it's all the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal this to Christians. That's the last thing he says. Look at verse 10a. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Through the Spirit. So, if you go back to chapter 1, he's talking about human wisdom. He's talking about study. He's talking about how you've got to figure it all out yourself. You've got to read other philosophers. You've got to know all these things through deep, deep study to be able to understand human wisdom. With God, there's none of that. It's just you get saved. He gives you the Holy Spirit. Boom, you got it because of God. This, this is the nature of God's wisdom that he would choose to impart all the mysteries made available to us that he chooses to reveal. He doesn't reveal them all. But what he chooses to reveal, we now can understand because he gives us the Holy Spirit. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal these things to us. So that's, that's the first section um, as Paul is helping them understand the good news of the gospel, which will be God's wisdom. Now, as he does this, he talks about the Holy Spirit in 10, uh, verses 10 through 13. So part B, you can go ahead and put up part B, um, the impartation of wisdom from the Spirit. So in verses 10 through 13, he's going to help us understand this impartation. Now, what he's going to do is use a syllogism. If you don't know what a syllogism is, I have an example. A syllogism, well, let me explain it first. A syllogism in, in philosophy is a, is a formal kind of deductive argument that's made up of a major premise, a minor premise, and those two things lead to your conclusion. For example, all birds have feathers. Um, penguins are, are birds, therefore penguins have feathers. And they do. They actually do. I googled it. They do. Um, so, because uh, like, that doesn't sound right, but they do. Um, so, uh, Paul's going to employ a syllogism, a major premise, a minor premise, and both of those things lead to a conclusion. That's what he's going to do here in the impartation of wisdom from the Holy Spirit. He's going to explain it to us. Let's read it. Verse 10b through 13. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Oh, that's not part of the, of the syllogism. Uh, that's just an opening statement, but just consider that for a second. 
the, the riches of the knowledge of the depths of the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, read the sentence prior to that. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. If the Spirit is able to search everything, even the depths of God, and then God chooses to reveal anything to you, He can do it by the Holy Spirit to you. So, because of the Holy Spirit and the mind of Christ, you have access to everything that God wants to let you have access to and understanding the richness and the depths of the knowledge of God. That's just mind-blowing. Here's the syllogism. All right, look at 11. For no one knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person. Now, when you read spirit of that person, think of your soul. Every person has this. This isn't the Holy Spirit implanted in you. This is what's, what's, what's true of every person. Every person, Christian or non, has a spirit within them. Not the Holy Spirit or not some crazy spirit. It just means they have a soul. They're thinking inward thoughts, having inward thoughts, having inward emotions, and that's called their spirit, right? And so he's saying that no one understands the person's thoughts except the soul of that person which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And this is what he says. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is in him from God that we might understand things freely given us by God. So here they are. Major premise is 11a. 11a says, for no one knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So only a person's own spirit or mind or soul uh, knows their individual thoughts unless you choose to reveal that. You know what you're thinking. No one else knows what you're thinking. Good or bad, only you know what you're thinking. Now you can reveal those things to other people and they can know, or you cannot. But what's true is you know it. You're the first person to know it, and if you hold on to it, you're the only person to know it. That's the first premise. The second premise, which is a minor, which is... It's only called minor because that's, that's philosophy. It's not necessarily a minor thing. It's actually a crazy thing. Look at 12a. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So the second one is Christians have God's spirit living inside them. Although in the syllogism, that's a minor premise. In our talk, that's a pretty big deal. <laughs> you have the Holy Spirit in you. you. Only you know your thoughts and you have the Holy Spirit in you. The conclusion, therefore, is the second part of 12 that we might understand the things freely. Now that word freely uh, has the word charis in it. So you can read it as graciously, uh, that, that God graciously or freely. So it's not just that he's kind of given it out. The fact that he is giving out this knowledge to you is his sheer grace that you can understand the things of him. So that it says, but the spirit who is from God, uh, that we might understand the things freely and graciously given us by God. So the conclusion is that Christians can know God's thoughts, parenthetical statement, to the extent that God lets us know all his thoughts. He doesn't let us know all of them. If there's 100% of God's thoughts and he gives us 20, then we can know fully those 20%. Who knows what the percentage is, what he gives and what he doesn't. Deuteronomy 31, 31. We can figure that out one day. But the point is, is that Christians can know God's thoughts because he's given us the Holy Spirit. So let's pause here and consider that for a second. You don't have to wonder if you can know the Holy Spirit, uh, God's thoughts of you. You don't have to wonder if my father's thoughts about me are, are mysterious. They can be known. You don't have to wonder if you can know what God thinks about salvation. You don't have to wonder anything. These things that, things that God has freely and graciously decided to reveal to us, we can know these things. We can know these things. So... 12b, we might understand um, the things that have been freely slash graciously given to us by God. We can know these things. So the impartation of the, wis- of the wisdom of the, from the Spirit. Now, verse 13 helps us understand the essential key to everything is the Holy Spirit. Look at 13. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. The way that we preach, the way that we talk, the way that anything happens, the way that we understand, everything uh, hinges on the absolute essential nature of the Holy Spirit making those things possible. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to everything. He says that we impart this in words. The Holy Spirit was essential 
absolutely essential in Paul's preaching. He tells us that. Look at verse two, chapter 2, 1 through 5. He said, when I came to you, I didn't know anything about Christ. I came in weakness. I came in fear. I came in trembling. My speech wasn't plausible. My, I didn't have plausible words of wisdom. But you all got saved. How did that happen? The Holy Spirit must have done that because it certainly wasn't me. And so the Holy Spirit was absolutely essential in Paul's preaching. It was absolutely essential in the Corinthian uh, salvation. If Paul came speaking like that and they got saved, then their salvation clearly was the work of the Holy Spirit. And um, the way that they were able to understand things about God was because of the Holy Spirit. So we don't, we don't need to make any mistake here. Understanding God or the work of reaching people, anything that the Lord wants us to understand or do, the Holy Spirit is absolutely key to all this. I'll give you a, a, an example. So um, this weekend, yesterday, I started building a shed in the, back, in the, in the uh, backyard uh, to store, you know, stuff. You know, you, 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 got, you got stuff, you got to store it. But, uh, so uh, the, the HOA says that in any kind of structure over 200 square feet, you're not allowed to, which is a 10 by 20. So I did 10 by 16, but I did two stories. So uh, I got around it anyway. I got extra square footage that they don't know the second floor. But that's here, near here or there. But here's the thing. I have no idea how to build a, uh, how to build a storage shed. I, those kinds of things don't come to me naturally. I, I can read throughout the week, and I'm good at that. But building stuff with my hands, uh, that, that doesn't happen with me. So um, I had to call Christy's uh, dad, and he's here for the weekend. So we're building a storage shed um, with my father-in-law this weekend. And I was so tired, I literally went to bed at 5 p.m. yesterday. I couldn't, I couldn't operate anymore. I couldn't even move. Um, so I'm doing the work w- with him, though. So uh, I'm hammering the nails. You know, he, he, he cuts them, and he puts all the marks on it, and he hands me all the two-by-fours. He goes, you can build a wall right there. So I feel kind of weird, like, building a wall like I'm a Trump supporter. It, but, but, so I, I build this wall. Uh, uh, so I build this wall. I build four walls, right? And so, but the thing is, is all I'm doing is hammering nails, right? I know how to put a two-by-four up to the line and see the X and, and hammer it and keep it flush. I know how to do that. But the, the mastermind behind it all is not, not me. Like, I'm just the work guy. Like, nail, hammer the nails. He saws it. He knows. He drew the plans. He told me what to buy. He took me to the store and said, you need that, you need that, you need that. Okay, we'll get some of that. Like, I'm, like I, I'm not doing anything. But in the end, the work, after it's being done, I can look back and say, hey, I built this shed. But I can't say I'm the mastermind behind the shed. I have no clue what I'm doing, right? But I built the shed. Here's the exact, that's the exact thing, same thing the Lord's doing with us, right? In the end, whenever you do the work of the Lord, whenever you understand anything, really the mastermind behind it all, making it happen, is the Holy Spirit. But you're still doing it. In the end, you, you shared the gospel and they got saved. In the end, you read the scripture and you understand it now. The mastermind behind it all, for me, was my father-in-law. He's the one that's making it happen, right? But I'm still, my arm still hurts. I still had to go to bed at 5 p.m. yesterday because I was exhausted, right? It's the same thing here. It's the same thing here. The Holy Spirit is the mastermind behind it all, but you're still doing it. And celebrate the fact and be thankful for the fact that the Lord is choosing you and using you to do His will. You're really doing it. You're really leading people to Christ. You're really reading the scriptures and understanding the scriptures. But don't ever forget that we have to have the Holy Spirit. He is the absolute linchpin. He's the essential key to everything for our salvation. You really trusted Christ. But the Holy Spirit brought that about because he did it. All the things that are happening in your life are happening because of the Holy Spirit's graciousness to you. But don't ever erase the fact that you're still doing it. Like, in the end, I'm going to have something that I hammered up and put it up there. Right? There it is. Whew. Thank you for doing it. But really, I did it too. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Now, Paul concludes this section about God's wisdom. And he does this by comparing the natural man with the spiritual man. You can see it in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of God, of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spirit- they are spiritually discerned. Natural men, that means someone that's not a Christian cannot understand uh, the things of God because they have to be spiritually discerned and he doesn't have the Holy Spirit, therefore he cannot discern the things of God. He can't. He can understand things, right? It doesn't mean he can't read the Bible and be like, yeah, there's a guy named Jesus and he died on the cross. He can understand those things. So we need to be careful, and I'm going to explain what we mean when we say natural man's ability to understand. Um, But he's comparing that to the spiritual man. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So there's a Comparison here between natural man and spiritual man. 
William Barclay, he was a Scotsman in the mid-1900s. He gives a definition of this natural man. He says this, um, a person without the spirit. This kind of individual lives as if there was nothing beyond the physical life and there were no needs other than material needs. That's what, that's what they are. They live as if there's nothing beyond this physical life and the only need they have are material needs. Such a person thinks that nothing is more important than the satisfa- satisfaction of things like the sex urge or that nothing can understand, uh, therefore he doesn't understand chastity. Or uh, the natural person ranks upon, uh, ranks upon all the other people as needing to accumulate material things and the supreme era, end of life cannot be generosity but accumulation. The one who is the natural man, has never thought beyond this world and cannot understand the things of God. That's the natural man. So, let's understand a little bit more from the text the things about the natural man. The natural man's inability to understand is not primarily cognitive. It's a matter of volition. So, it's, it's not lack of necessarily information that he's not accepting. He, he understands the information It's not that he necessarily needs more information unless he hasn't heard the gospel yet. But what he needs, which we've been reading, is the Spirit of God to come in and awaken him to salvation. He needs the volition to be able to trust, and he doesn't have it until the Spirit of God comes in and quickens him, as they say, the old Puritans say. So it's the understanding is that he needs the Spirit of God, not more information. Now, if they don't know the gospel, they need the gospel. They need the information too. But they also have to have... um, The Spirit of God. So practically, what this means is this. This means that the people in your life that you are already sharing the gospel with, repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly sharing the gospel with them, while you should keep doing that, what you also need to be doing is praying like crazy that the Holy Spirit would come in and awaken their hearts to see and understand what Christ has done. So, yes, share the gospel with them, but more so, pray like crazy that the Holy Spirit would come in and awaken their hearts and minds. Now, that's the natural man. He, he puts that in comparison to the spiritual man. And he says that the spiritual man has been given the Holy Spirit. And so since that's the case, he has trusted in Christ. You can see in verse 15 that the spiritual man judges all things. This word judge um, is, is the verb discern. It's, it's like the verb discern. So uh, a better way to maybe to read verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Uh, The spiritual man is able, because he has the Holy Spirit in him, to discern all things, is a better way to maybe read that. So uh, this means the essence of, uh, in essence means that believers have the ability to bring God's perspective to bear on every aspect of life and make intelligent spiritual decisions. When it says that the spiritual man judges all things, it means we have the ability to discern all situations. And because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we really have the ability to make great decisions because we have the Spirit of God in us. So practically, what would that mean? It means this. Every Christian should never run from high-level responsibility in your company, in your organization, in your college, in your family, or whatever. We should never run from those high-level responsibilities. We should be the person at the absolute tip-top of those organizations, companies, families, because we have the ability to make better decisions than anybody, because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Who better to be making important decisions than Christians, than you? So we don't run from those opportunities. We, we run for those opportunities, because we have the Holy Spirit of God in us. Um, and it also says, but is himself to be judged by no one. That means ultimately the Christian will be judged by God, but it does not mean that Christians cannot judge other Christians. Paul's going to command in chapter 5 for Christians to, to judge the disgusting sin that's going on in chapter 5 later on. And then it says, uh, for who has understood the mind of the Lord as so to instruct him? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. And it says, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, Garland says that he's quoting Isaiah 40, 13. Uh, it's, it's, again, it's one of those things where it's not necessarily in the text, but, he, but Garland points out that this, as he's quoting, it says, but we have the mind of Christ. Originally, that was the mind of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And for Paul, it's no big deal to say the mind of Yahweh, the I am, is also the mind of Christ, Jesus. And so Jesus is God, and so Jesus has and is God. Uh, And so we have the mind of God, so we can really know Christ. We can really know him. This having the mind of Christ, this sentence, has been abused quite a bit 
through the last 2,000 years. It isn't some kind of um, mystical, ascertained, uh, second-level knowledge, third-level knowledge, whatever-level knowledge that you've heard. But instead, it means the mind of Christ means we have the mind of Christ to see Christ's obedience and be able to obey like Christ. Paul is appearing to, uh, appealing to a paradigm in which since Jesus has the ability to obey, you have his mind and you have the ability to obey. 2 Corinthians 5.15, he died for all that those who might, li- who, who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. So we now live for him. So we have Christ in us. And now we have the mind of Christ in the Holy Spirit. We can commune with God. We can understand his will. And we can understand his word. My wife, whenever I'm on the phone with her, cell phone, she never hangs up. She, she says that it's too hard. It's got too many things on it. It's got too many apps. It's got too many buttons. And so when we're on the phone, I'll say, all right, I'll see you later. And she's like, okay. And she just puts it down. And she's like, I can't find the, the red button. Now, I, I, I hear that, and I'm thinking, how's that possible? <laughs> like, you just go to the phone, and you hit the red button. But she, she forgets to hang up the phone with me all the time. So um, we'll say bye, and she just puts the phone down. So she's driving one day, and she's talking to JC on the phone, our, our oldest daughter. She's driving with JC. JC was at home. Um, and so Christy's going to ba- probably ballet. That's where, she, that's where we end up going all the time, right? She's going either to or from ballet, and she's talking to JC, and she's like, okay, bye. And she puts the phone down on, you know, this big table thing in your car that's really the, the mid place, the armrest. And so she puts it down, and JC knows that Christy doesn't hand up the phone. And so JC stands there for a little bit. She waits about 30 to 40 seconds. It's all quiet on the western front in the car. Christy's finally got, you know, a moment of silence because JC's at home with the kids or whatever. We do that. It's okay. She's 13. She can handle them. So anyway, uh, JC, uh, JC does, and she goes, ah! Like just yells at the phone at Christy. And so Christy's just driving and, of course, almost wrecks and, and goes off the side of the road um, because she wasn't expecting that. And we laugh. We're like, you never hang up the phone. You never hang up the phone. Same thing with me. I was talking to Christy on the phone, um, and I was coming home late. It was like 10 p.m., from something, and uh, I walk in the house, and we're still talking. We've been on the phone. While I was driving. I walk in the house. We're still on the phone. She's already in bed. You know, 8 p.m. She's Michael Jordan asleep, and she can sleep better than anybody else. Once, once all the kids are in bed, she's responsible. So anyway, uh, so I'm talking, talking to her, and uh, I have to go in, and I'm doing some 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 sewing stuff because we make ties. And so we're talking, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, hold on, I'm gonna come up there. So I put my phone down. On, on the hook, and I go up to the room, right? And so I'm talking to her for a few minutes. She completely forgets that the phone is still on the hook. And so I forgot, actually. And so we, 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 we talk about whatever. She, she stays, and I go back downstairs to do some more. And I walk up to the phone, and I see it, right? Now, her phone sits right beside Tristan's monitor. And so I wait a little bit, and I'm like, hey! And I scream at it. And so she's freaking out, right? She thinks that I'm literally in the room with Tristan, screaming hey at him, waking up, scares her to death, etc. Um, my point is this, right? You're thinking, what is the point of that? Here's the point. I've been waiting for this illustration for a while. Like, how can I use this, man? I got it. I got it. Here's the deal, right? Here's the deal. She never hangs up the phone, and she always leaves the phone on. She never hangs up the phone. She always is on. In the same way, because of the Holy Spirit, you have this right now with Jesus. You have this right now. The phone is always on. It's never going to be hung up. And with him, you have constant communion with Jesus. You have constant access to his thoughts because the Holy Spirit has been given to you. The line's never off. It's always on. You're able always to constantly put up the main idea of the message. You're able constantly, because of the Holy Spirit and the mind of Christ, to commune with God. You have, understand his will. Put up the first slide, the main idea of the message. You have the ability to commune with God, understand his will, and understand his word. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we're able to do these things. We don't need to, I think that what happens though is this, like my wife, we forget we left the phone on. We forget, oh, I have constant con- access with God. I forgot about that. Oh yeah, this huge thing going on in my life, or this sin I'm struggling with in my life, or I need to share the gospel with this person, or man, I really feel like a wretched sin. You forgot that you have the Holy Spirit. You forgot that you have constant access to God. You forgot that you have this huge, massive thing called the gospel that God's graciously, constantly extending forgiveness to you. You forget it. I forget it. We all forget it. And so having the Spirit of God and having the mind of Christ means that we should never forget that we have this. We have constant, free, graciously given access to God 
through Christ, made possible by the Holy Spirit. And that means that we now can commune with God. God's wisdom is that he gave us the Holy Spirit and saved us, and we can know the mind of Christ. We can understand, you can understand, I can understand his will for our life right now. It's not some mysterious thing that we'll never get. It's available right now. You also can understand his word. The Holy Spirit comes in, read John chapters 14, 15, 16. It's just a big, huge explanation in John chapter 14, 15, 16 of what the Holy Spirit does for you to be able to understand his word. Because of the Holy Spirit, this, this wisdom of God in the gospel, we have those things. So you don't need to fight about Paul or Apollos or Matt Chandler or John Piper or whatever theologian we think we follow. We have the Holy Spirit. We have him. So I want you to remember this. You have the mind of Christ now if you're in Christ. And you can commune with God, do his will, graciously accomplish all things, know what he wants, understand his word, live and dwell in the good news of the gospel constantly. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much for your word. We pray, Lord, that we would remember that we have this beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit given to us by you, not in folly, not in foolishness, but in your wisdom. Far greater wisdom than we could understand. And you gave it to the Corinthians. And you set forth from eternity past, knowing they would be huge messes, knowing they would be living in rampant sin, and you saved them anyway. You gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit anyway. Which means the same is true for us. We're not some crazy mistake that we edged into your family. You, from the foundations of the earth, set forth to adopt us as your sons and daughters. Even though we are a mess, you set your love on us, and you saved us, and you gave us the Holy Spirit, and you gave us the mind of Christ. Every single one of us are on absolute level playing field. No one's more loved by you than another. Instead, we all have been given the Holy Spirit. Your wisdom is amazing. And we thank you that you would freely and, grac- and graciously invite us into your wisdom to know and understand you, to know and understand uh, what you have ordained. Thank you, God, for saving us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.